The book of 1 Timothy is a pastoral epistle written by Paul the Apostle. It's one of his final letters to his protege and spiritual son, a young pastor named Timothy. And although the letter is intended for his ministry life, the content transcends and applies to the Church of Jesus Christ. Within this letter is the most explicit and complete instructions for church leadership and administration. Not only is the Christian's character of utmost importance, but also the church's culture is of spiritual significance. From the qualifications of elders and deacons to the quality of the times and seasons, this letter teaches the believer to guard the truth of the gospel against spiritual treason. And that is why 1 Timothy is a perfect template to follow for life and ministry. Because when we submit to the inspiration and course correction of this letter, the church will be pure, her people bolder, and the gospel clearer. The book of 1 Timothy. Dear church, this is your charge. All right, so good morning. I hope you came ready to study the word of God this morning. We are in the book of 1 Timothy. My name is Matthew Mayer. I'm one of the ministers amongst many that are honored to serve this body of believers for such a time as this. If you have your tangible Bibles, which I highly suggest and prefer, even though Laney just walked you through how to get the digital version of the Bible on the app. Either or works, however, the tangible Bible allows you to at least put your eyes on the physical written word of God. And of course, many of you already know this. I love when I see you taking notes and trying to keep up as we're making our way through. We are in 1 Timothy. We will start chapter three this morning. We will cover verses one to three this morning. Usually verses one to seven are covered together because we're gonna look at the qualifications of an elder, a bishop, a pastor, an overseer. Now before I say any more about that, I have found that the book of 1 Timothy has been useful to set culture in a church. Not just culture, theology, or doctrine. The entire letter is written by Paul the Apostle to his young protege, Timothy, Location, Ephesus. Ephesus was a popular place in the early church days. There was a lot of problems that Paul was addressing through Timothy. We discover that chapter one is about the message of the church. The primary message of the church is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a faithful saying to know that Christ became like us to save us. The book of 1 Timothy is also about the ministries of the church, the variety of ministries that are there to service the people of God, but not perhaps some of the errors of the American church, creating Christians who are spiritually obese. Think about that for just a second. Information overload, right? We're not lacking for information. We're not even lacking for sermons and messages, which is what I primarily do for a living. However, the responsibility for the Christian and the believer that's part of a body is to contribute back to that body, but not just within the building, but what God has called us to do beyond the building. Not everybody is in full-time ministry, but everybody is called to ministry full-time. Does that make sense? Because each of us need to have what it says in the word of God to be equipped to do the works of the ministry. We find that in 1 Timothy. We find 
the qualifications or the template or the requirements of the church's ministers, both men and women. 1 Timothy chapter 3 shows us these characteristics. Now, make no mistake, the appointment to pastor or elder or bishop, some translations say overseer, shepherd, is a high calling, one of the highest, and one that is given by the commissioning of God, not the expectations of man. There's a huge difference between the two. The expectations of man, as many of us know, are crushing. And often, they're unrealistic. And that is probably one of the major reasons why churches are out of balance when it comes to biblical obedience. Expectations placed on men and women that are from God are life-giving. Expectations that are placed on men and women from man are crushing debilitating. Many churches expect a pastor to, of course, condemn sin, but make sure he doesn't hurt anyone's feelings along the way. Hmm. Many expect the pastor to work hours like 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. Make sure he does all the preaching, all the counseling, all the administration, and all of the church discipline falls on his shoulders. He better be at least 40 years of age with approximately 50 years of pastoral experience. <laughs> he should be tall on the short side, heavy on the thin side, and handsome, but not too handsome. He should have a fiery desire to work with the youth of the church, yet at the same time, spend all his time with the elderly. He should smile constantly with a straight face. He should invest at least 30 hours in sermon preparation, 25 hours in counseling, 20 hours in meetings, 20 hours in visitation, 30 hours in prayer, and be on call. And he better answer my phone call when I call. He should attend every meeting. He should be involved in every church activity. He should be available in his office for the found, per chance they wanna stop by and shoot the breeze, but also, he better be in the community evangelizing the lost. He should have perfect children, a perfect wife who is perfectly kind, perfectly patient, and perfectly dressed. Did I mention perfect? She should be young and beautiful, while at the same time older and mature. She should play the piano, serve in the nursery, sing on the worship team, minister to the women's ministry, host Bible studies in her home. The pastor better be funny. He better be scholarly. He better be popular. He better be business savvy. And above all, he better be nice. The 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. But none of those expectations that I just listed, not a single one are biblical. They might sound good, but here's the question that we must answer. Are they from God? The requirements that are expected of a pastor are found in our text this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. They, amongst 15 character traits, are characterological. 15 of these requirements primarily are characterological. Only one in that list 
is spiritual pertaining to a gifting, and that's teaching. Why is that? Can I tell you why? Because character, godly character in God's economy trumps charisma. And too many churches are entrusting primary ministries to men who are just charismatic. Their, their charisma precedes them. But Christ is looking for men and women of character. So while I'll be teasing out and touching on biblical qualifications for the church's leaders, which is male-oriented, it's also applicable to everyone, every lady, every man. These are the requirements that we should strive for as Christians. See, an individual may be able to preach and teach and lead other people in the word of God, but here's the question you should be asking of your leaders. Is that man leading himself in the word of God? Anyone can get up here with the gift of communication and speak. The question is, is there a difference between the person on the stage, we call it the public persona, and that person's private personality? All of us should be closing the gap between the two, but there should be no hypocrisy for those who step into this office. First Timothy chapter three, verses one to seven are very explicit. It tells us what God is looking for in his leaders. Make no mistake, when God is looking for his leaders, he is not looking for intellectual heads. He's not looking for capable hands. God is looking for humble hearts. Now, out of a humble heart may follow an intellectual head. Of course, there's a requirement of competency, capable hands. But the heart is what God is after. Note this, 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. One of my favorite verses, because I personalize it. It says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Pause. How many people are on planet earth? Billions. What is God looking for amongst the billions? It says this, a heart that is loyal to him. That heart is the heart that God Almighty will stand strong behind. I don't know about you guys, but I wanna be that humble heart. I wanna say a prayer where I give God permission and access to make much of himself through the humbling of my heart. Now we know in the Old Testament, there were two kings that are juxtaposed or compared one to another. And that is the first king of Israel, which I like to label him the people's choice. Interestingly, when he is given external description or profile of him, it says that he's handsome and he is a head and a shoulder above everyone else. Interestingly, if you read between the lines, he was a picture of the people's hearts and what they wanted in one of their leaders. And by wanting a king like the other nations, they weren't rejecting the prophet Samuel, though he thought they were. God said, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. He was one of their judges. They're rejecting me. And if they want a king, I'll give them a king. And of course, Saul was the people's choice. And then of course, Saul, he failed. He didn't humble himself along the way. And there was one that God chose, and his name was David. 
And even in the selection process of David, his own father completely missed what God was after. In fact, as the prophet Samuel showed up and he lined up all of his boys, seven of them present, the eighth, the runt of the litter, David was nowhere in sight. So it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse six, so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature. This is one of those famous verses. Because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. What does the Lord see then? For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, fill in the blank. You could do a little bit better than that. Fill in the blank. It looks at the heart. God is looking at our hearts. Now, people use that, obviously, as a justification or excuse, like, don't judge me. God sees my heart. <laughs> well, I can see your behavior, and your behavior is showing out your heart. Oh, you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Because out of the heart flows the words I speak. Out of the heart is my behavior. Out of the heart is me. Out of the heart is conduct. Out of the heart is character. And God is looking for men and women of character in these days. And that is why I do not disconnect chapter three from chapter two and the ending of chapter two, where we had a handle that only the spiritual authority and the doctrinal authority of a church is given to a man, gender specific. Which is why in chapter three, he's going to double down on that. He's going to say in verse one, this is a faithful saying. That if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, we've already covered this word bishop here is episkopos in Greek. It means overseer. Some translations, I guarantee you on your lap, probably say overseer. Some might say pastor. Other translations might say bishop like mine or shepherd. These are interchangeable terms. They have different application at certain places in the scriptures. Nonetheless, it's speaking of a superintendent of a church, a guardian, if you will. And I like that word guardian because it's also related to the word shepherd. What does a shepherd do? He guards his flock, he feeds his flock, he protects his flock. The shepherd is willing to lay down his life for his flock, which is the opposite of a hireling. A hireling is only in it for the salary, not the souls of the people that are entrusted to them. Now this individual desires, it says, the position, which is an office of overseer. And if he desires it, it's a good work, a noble work. It's a good desire. Now make no mistake, this is not about outward ambition. This desire is an inward compulsion. I've said this before, it's not about aspiring to something as much as as much as it's about inspiring to something. You're inspired to it. The elder, the pastor, the one who was called to ministry, it's not just a good option for them. It's the only option. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon when asked about ministry was quoted as saying, don't enter the ministry if it's possible. And the reason he said something like that was because if there's another option for you, 
that shows you that you're not called to the ministry full time. The man that's called wakes up thinking about serving the body of Christ. But not everyone is called to full-time ministry, as I said earlier. Everyone, however, is called to minister where God has placed them. So right away, we are told that a man who desires this office, he desires a noble work. Now keep in mind these requirements, these qualifications, this template that we're gonna look at is for the office of pastor elder, for the overseer. But that does not mean that each of us should not strive for these biblical qualifications, right? There's a standard for the office, but that does not mean, especially us men, should not live in practice and service of these qualifications. Does that make sense? I would even use my own father as that example. My father fulfills all the requirements that I'm going to teach over the next several weeks yet doesn't have a desire to fulfill the office, yet he lives it in practice. Is this making sense? Which means there's many of us in this room right now, men who have these qualifications, but just don't have the desire to be in full-time ministry. So I don't wanna discourage anyone, but there are plenty of us in this room that have a desire and maybe the Lord is stoking a new fire in you and he wants to do a new work and he's calling you to serve his body. Now, let's do a quick overview of the overseer quick, and then we'll do a closer view of the overseer. What are the responsibilities of this overseer? They are to rule and to preach and teach God's word. That's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. I'll read it. Let the elders who rule or manage be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Did you see that? Those that have this office are worthy of the double honor. Of course, based on their conduct and how they behave, but they're also those responsible for laying out the doctrine and the duty of the church of Jesus Christ. They labor in the word. They are also those in this position who are to be summoned by the church when there are those who are sick and are in need of prayer. All of us can pray for those that are sick, but James chapter five, verse 14 tells us specifically, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That is one of the responsibilities of an overseer, to care for the church, to be an example for others to follow. We read about this in 1 Peter chapter five, verse one through three. Let me read it. The elders who are among you, I exhort. This is Peter writing. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, not lording anything over anyone, but being examples, there it is, an example to the flock. In Acts chapter 15, we see elders laying out church policy, and in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, which we'll get to, we see that they laid hands on Timothy to stimulate the gift that God gave him to serve. Now that's an overview. That would be enough if you track those verses to do your own deep dive into the responsibilities of your leaders. But now we're gonna do a closer view of the overseer. Now this is the question that we're after. The list that we're gonna go through Many men can check off, check, 
But that's not the point. Because a man who checks off all the boxes may be a good leader. But the question that you should be asking, is that man God's leader, okay, for the church? They may be a good leader. The question is, are they God's leader? What makes God's leader, I guess, is the question. Being eloquent? No. That helps. Eloquence, being able to communicate, being able to teach the word of God, expound upon spiritual matters, but being gifted does not qualify one for spiritual leadership. Being eloquent does not, being eloquent does not qualify anyone for spiritual leadership. Did you know that many churches make that their one and only criteria? Can we put him in the pulpit? Can we prop him up? And can he speak to the people? And that is a violation of the character test in 1 Timothy chapter three. How much money one gives to the church is not a qualification to be placed into spiritual leadership. Being a successful businessman, not a qualification to be in spiritual leadership at a church. How much one volunteers of time, of talent, according to the text, not one of the qualifications of being granted access to spiritual leadership. And get this one, you ready for this one? Going to seminary does not make one qualified for spiritual leadership. Not too long ago, actually at this point, long ago, before COVID in 2020, that's like my, my time marker. <laughs> I would go out to California for a pastor's conference every single year. The location of the pastor's conference was prestigious, if you will, based on their own seminary and of course their affiliation to other seminaries. Thousands of pastors across the world would travel to this one conference and I was one of many. And I would go out there to be refreshed and to sit under sound teaching. But during the intervals or the breaks between sessions, you'd find yourself in conversations with other pastors or ministers and everybody had a name tag. And of course, mine said Matthew and it had your location where you were traveling from. Mine said New Jersey. So that always struck up conversations. Wow, nice to meet you. New Jersey, you've traveled a long way to get here. That would always be followed by the next question. Are you in ministry? Yes. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Every time I'd answer that question at this conference, it was always followed by, did I go to seminary? Right, and those conversations, as you can imagine, based on my background, would either be favorable and they were interested in what God was doing, or many would look down their noses at me as if I was ill-equipped and untrained to be in a pulpit anywhere administering God's word. So I picked and chose how I was gonna engage people, especially in line, getting coffee, and people wanna have small talk. And this day, I'm trying to get my coffee and get out of the way, and of course, there, there they are. Hey, man, where are you from? New Jersey. I'm like, here comes the, the questions. <laughs> are you in ministry? Yes. What do you do? I'm a pastor, and I'm waiting for it question. Where did you go for your theological training? And I used the gift of mumbling <laughs> to give the answer. I said very quickly, 
Southern State Correctional Facility. And they said, did you say Southern Baptist Theological Seminary? I was like, kinda. And they said, how, how long was that program? I said, about five to 10. Now listen, if God calls one for additional training, whether it be seminary or Bible college, follow God's lead. If he has not, that is not a template that all must follow. And your pastor is an example of that. God will choose whom he will. And of course, each of us have to respond to that call. What qualifies a man then for spiritual leadership is only godly character. Godly character established by what I'm calling the minimum biblical requirement, minimum biblical requirements. This is the prerequisite to church leadership. And why do you need to know this? By the end of this message, you're gonna know why you need to know about the qualifications for your leaders. Verse two, a bishop then must be blameless. Some translations and even the proper translation, a bishop must be above reproach. Keep that phrase in your mind, above reproach. Blameless here before we get into the actual application of it in this context, in this verse, I wanna make sure we all understand this word blameless. There are three types of positions, if you will, of being blameless. The first is positional blamelessness. Some would say, if you're taking notes, positional righteousness. What is that? It means this, every Christian, every born again believer, everyone with the Holy Spirit deposited within their lives as a guarantee from the Father. Everyone is presented blameless because the Lamb of God took the blame for us. Let me say it a little bit differently. Every one of us has escaped guilt because of the scapegoat. And the scapegoat in the Old Testament, we know what a scapegoat is, right? Somebody that takes the blame. Jesus took the blame. When he died on that cross, his sacrifice made those that would come to him, those that were unrighteous, would become righteous based on his standing. That's positional blamelessness. Let me give you a few verses. Colossians 1, 21, listen to this. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's what it says. You are presented blameless and above reproach in the sight of a holy God because of the Son of God. Jude chapter 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless or blameless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Who's doing the presenting? Jesus. And you are blameless. That's positional blamelessness. Then there's Ready? Conditional blamelessness. Let me define that for you. As a condition of being a Christian, we are all called to be blameless. Every Christian is called to be above reproach. That does not mean sinless. That just simply means nobody can bring blame to you, blameless. Can I give you a few verses? One by way of description, Job chapter one, verse one. He's described as a blameless 
an upright man. Why was he blameless and upright? It tells you. He feared God and he shunned evil. There it is. The man that fears God and shuns evil. Blameless and upright. Philippians chapter two, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That's a good start. That you might become, what's it say? Blameless and harmless. You know one of the ways somebody can grab a hold of your life and bring blame or ill repute? How we complain. How we are quick to complain. That is our native tongue as sinners. Guilty. When things don't go my way, I can find every reason to complain. But this passage tells us, do all things without complaining and disputing that you might become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What makes us stand out among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. How about Psalm 119 verse one? Note this, blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Every Christian, though we're dealing with specific men who are called to a specific office, every Christian should be blameless. A blameless heart seeks to please God in all things and offend him in none. I want that heart. Notice it says offend God, not offend man. This heart wants to please the Lord in all things and sometimes pleasing the Lord comes with offending man. The third form of blamelessness. Now, remember, we, and I'm taking some time here because I think this, everything that follows what it means to be blameless is an outpouring of that characteristic. Everything from verses two to seven are a result of one being blameless. The third is constitutional blamelessness. Positional, conditional, constitutional. I chose that word very carefully, why? We all know what a constitution is. A constitution is a body of principles that govern an organization. The church has a constitution, it's the word of God, right? When somebody steps into an office, they have to take the oath of office and they are held to a different standard of conduct. So there is this constitutional blamelessness for the church's leaders, right? Not long ago, from this stage, I made it very clear that the leaders of a church must be above reproach, must, mandatory, no wiggle room. And I was shocked how many people were angry that I made that statement. People reached out to me, people grabbed me, people talked badly about me in the bathroom. <laughs> they didn't know my mommy was in the other stall. You know what I learned? Is that the church generally speaking, is biblically illiterate. And any church that is unaware that her leaders must be above reproach 
creates a culture where that leader is not held accountable. An overseer is always under scrutiny and therefore must be above reproach. Listen, not above being approached, above reproach. And when I thought about that, wow, above being approached, this person is unapproachable. I, I recognize that if anyone is above being approached, then they are not above reproach. Because each of us, the leaders included, should be approachable and they should be open to criticism and healthy feedback. And that's welcomed here. I guess I should say this. This is like a personal soapbox. There's a clock back there. If you have ever reached out to me on social media or email and you did not hear a response from me, please follow up. Sometimes messages get lost in the inbox. I wanna be a leader that is available and approachable. And I want you to know that when you reach out to the office or you reach out to me, you can set up a meeting anytime. You can have my cell phone number. You can call and reach out to me within reason and I will be available. I will be approachable. That's my heart for you. Don't abuse it, but please take advantage of it. And I only say that because you need to know who your leaders are. Because I can't do this and the elders can't do this without you. We are not in some penthouse room, making decisions that we hope trickle down to the people way down there. No. The standard is that the church's leaders would be in the midst of the people. I think a leader's greatest asset, an elder's greatest security, an elder's greatest weaponry is the word integrity. I think of a proverb that says, when a man walks with integrity, he walks securely. That, translation, that man does not have to look over his shoulder. That man does not have to worry about somebody walking in on him in his office. What is he looking at on his computer? That man is not worried about his wife grabbing his phone and looking at all of his messages, which I give my wife complete permission to grab any of my devices at any time and check out anything that I'm doing online because I wanna be above reproach. That's integrity. Being above reproach is not just within these four walls. It's a conduct of how we live outside of the building. Whether I'm in the gym, whether I'm renting an Airbnb, whether I'm staying in a hotel, whether I'm at a wedding, like wherever Christians are, there's a standard of conduct and especially for the leaders. Now here's why, and here's what I'm getting after. If you're a spiritual leader in a church, those that will watch online will certainly be part of other ministries. It is likely that those individuals, men and women, are more targeted by the devil. Why would he target men and women in ministry? Because they're on the front lines full time. And if they're on the front lines full time, especially a pastor, think about this. If the devil can cause a pastor or an elder to fall, to fail, to be found a fraud, 
that will do the greatest damage and harm to the flock. There's also greater knowledge of being an elder. The word itself lends itself to the definition of being mature. Greater knowledge of the truth comes with greater accountability to live out the truth. I don't have to rattle off a long list of men who have fallen from their positions as pastors and elders. You can Google search them. But I do wanna let you know that the fallout after those falls amongst the people is devastating. Pastor Gene, as always, adds such biblical clarity when I'm preaching. When Jesus said, when you strike the shepherd, here's gonna be the result. The sheep will scatter, right? That was true for him. And obviously it's true for anyone that steps into the position of spiritual leadership. James chapter three, verse one. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers. Why? Knowing that we shall receive stricter judgment. Who would want that? Now, I start there because that is the only one in this long list that is a gifting. The rest are behavioral or characterological. So I wanna begin with that one qualification, able to teach. Let's read them in order. I'll start from the back and I'll make my way back to the front. A bishop then must be blameless, a husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Now, there's two schools of thought here. That man must have the gift to teach. I don't think it's the gifting as much as it's an inclination to be able to expound upon and communicate the doctrines of the church. Does that make sense? The elders, a propensity to want to teach, to want to explain, to be the first person to bring the people to the book. The gift of teaching is an entirely different anointing that God would give individuals to be able to communicate his word in an assembly like this. Titus chapter one, verse nine, those same qualifications that are being laid out for Timothy, for the church, Paul wrote to Titus for the Cretans. He was in Crete. A Cretan, that's so funny. Anyway, Titus chapter one, verse nine. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, ready, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. What's the goal? Exhort, that means build up, edify, and convict. Bring conviction from the word of God. Let somebody run out behind that curtain. Because <laughs> one of the qualifications is the elder must not be violent, but I don't know about that in that moment. <laughs> this man must be able to teach. Now, let's work our way back. Some of these are self-explanatory. I'm not gonna spend too much time teasing and teaching out. They're self-explanatory. This man must be the husband of one wife as opposed to the husband of two wives. But more importantly, what is written here is characterological, which means it's not about marital status. This is not suggesting the man must be married. How do I know that? Because if you keep reading, it says the man's house, how he rules his house, and how his children, plural, are in submission. Does that mean the man must have at least two children? And if he has just one, he's not qualified? No, it's giving a general example 
At the time that Paul writes this, most men were married with children. So he's using that. But that is not what's being said here. It's not about your marital status. This is about your sexual integrity. Look it up. It means a one woman man. This is not talking about the man's marital history. This is talking about the man that's married to one woman only has eyes for her. He doesn't flirt with other females. He doesn't hold their hand longer than he should. That man can be trusted in an interaction, in a conversation with somebody else's wife. While accountability should always be present so that accusation cannot come, make no mistake, that man only has eyes for his wife. That's what that means. As we move right along, temperate, sober-minded, and of good behavior, they're all really the same terms. But for the sake of understanding a little bit of nuance, to be temperate means to be self-restrained. This man is free from any negative influences. This man is free from any negative influences. Now, the, the challenge is identifying what is negative. What do I mean by that? I mean this, something healthy in your life in excess is unhealthy. It could be a habit, it could be entertainment, could be hobbies. This man governs his life and doesn't allow anything extracurricular to take him away from the task at hand. You know what I love what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth? Two times he wrote this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. How far can you take Christian liberty, pastor? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful for me. He then adds to that. All things are lawful for me, but I know all things don't edify. Hey guys, it's legal to go drink gasoline. I don't recommend it though. Like these are the questions we get. Hey, this thing has been legalized. What's your take on it? Hey, all things are lawful, go for it. But for me, I'll take 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will be brought under the mastery of nothing. I love that verse. How about you? What's controlling your life? Are possessions actually possessing you? You think you have a handle on something? You think you're in control? But if you're being intellectually honest, your life is really out of control? Right, God is calling all of us to be temperate. This person has no master but Christ. Luke chapter six, verse 40, a disciple is not greater than his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. I love that. Becoming more like Jesus, all of us. See, whatever masters you is your master. Whatever masters you is your master. He then says sober-minded is a qualification. It means vigilant, it means clear, it means having clarity, it means sensible. He's, he's aware of all his senses. He sees with clarity, he speaks with clarity. This man, this woman, if you will, that has these characteristics, they are sober in their thoughts. Now, now notice this word obviously can lend itself to being serious. And every spiritual leader should be serious, but not without a sense of humor. Not without clean and pure humor, laughter. Like you don't want people that are always so serious. You don't want your spiritual leaders to look like they've been baptized by lemon juice. You know what I'm saying? 
Because the people in a church often become like their leaders. And the direction that the leader is going in, the people follow. Of good behavior, it's the word, as we've already covered in chapter two about women adorning themselves, outfitting themselves. It's the word cosmos. Of good behavior means well-ordered. In other words, not out of order. This man is not out of order. Nothing in his life is out of order. He doesn't bring confusion and chaos into anyone else's life, let alone the church of Jesus Christ where God is a God of order. This individual is hospitable. By way of meaning, he loves strangers. That's what that word means. Every Christian should be hospitable, but elders are required to love strangers, which means they're able to make people that they don't know feel welcomed and warm. They open up their home, they open up their heart, they're hospitable. My wife is way better at this than me. In fact, I think that's why being one flesh, I can take credit for her being more hospitable. She always reminds me of the importance of opening up our home and bringing in some of the staff to have dinner with or other people to have fellowship with. And I don't pose it. I'm a, I could be a homebody, I'm not gonna lie, like being in my home. But one of the requirements is that you have a love for people and strangers. Verse three, very quickly, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. We're gonna stop with these. Not given to wine, translation, not addicted to wine, not given to drunkenness, not lingering at the drink, not given over to an addiction is what that means. Now, there's debate on alcohol in the church. Make no mistake, the Bible does not prohibit the drinking of alcohol. It prohibits drunkenness. Huge difference between the two. But your pastor would be the first to say, it is better to abstain for obvious reasons. Is that making sense? But for the leader, even more so, to not be given over to anything that is gonna take my faculties Paul says that elders must not be given to drunkenness. Obviously, scripture does not forbid drinking alcohol. However, scripture cautions anyone from drinking in excess and forbids drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk by way of wine, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting when you drive by, at least in the city, when I used to go to Temple University, and I really wasn't, clearly wasn't, living for the Lord, but it, it, it didn't, it didn't evade me. When I would drive by a liquor store, many of them were called wine and spirits. And I always thought about that, like, wow. What spirit am I putting inside of my body? And then Ephesians chapter five, verse 18 tells us, Proverbs 20, verse one, you're gonna cover this with Terrence in the pulpit when he gets there. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler, and anyone given over to them is a fool. How about Romans chapter 14, verse 21? This is for the elders, this is for the Christian. We care about the weaker brother. In verse 21, it says, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak, right? So this goes back to all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful or beneficial. And I don't wanna bring any reproach to the church of Jesus Christ or my office not violent, obvious, right? 
but the definition is hilarious. It means not one who strikes with the fist or grabs a weapon. And up to this point, I personally was not sure whether or not I wanted my elders with or without weapons. But the text has made up my mind. Not one that grabs a weapon. That's it. Not one that wants to punch you in the face with their fist. Not greedy for money. Self-explanatory. This person does not have a love for money. They're in it for the souls and not the salary. Gentle. This means strength under control. You want your leaders to be strong yet composed. Jesus described himself with two character, characteristics and it was gentleness and humility. Jesus said, I am gentle, I am meek, and I am humble. And if Jesus applied gentleness to himself, it's not a negative. We often think people that are gentle, they're weak. You know, they're, they're gonna be stepped on. And, and no, it's not, it's the opposite. It's, it's they know their strength and they're able to restrain their strength. This person does not impose their will or their way or their agenda on anyone. This person is gracious. And finally, not quarrelsome. That means not always fighting, not always in an argument, not always contentious. Now make no mistake, and I said it from this stage, when I said the word fighting or be a fighter, in reference to men, I'm talking about having a passion about protecting what God has entrusted to you, each of us. That every man must have some fight. You might not be looking for a fight, but if it comes a knocking, you're willing to protect what God has given you. So let me be clear, your church needs leaders who aren't looking for a fight. Your church needs those who are not looking the other way amid a fight, they should fight, right? So there's a huge difference between the two in my mind. You're, he's not looking for a fight, but he's not looking the other way in the midst of a fight that he should fight. I see how underwhelmed you are by the message this morning. It's greatly encouraging for a pastor. Finally, not covetous. Not covetous, self-explanatory. This man in this office does not desire anything or anyone that has not been given to him. Those that are covetous, they look out in a world of material and they desire more. It's never enough. You wanna be on guard against being covetous. It means you're never satisfied in your soul. The opposite of never being satisfied is being content. And you wanna see your leaders in this church be content, whether they have or don't have whether they are where they wanna be or they're not, they are content with what God has entrusted to them. I think this, ver this message is extremely important for you to know what is required of your leaders. I think it's important for the men in this place to prayerfully consider what God is doing and if you are aspiring or desiring this office, what it takes. I also think it's important for even our youth, young men and young women, to know the template and the characteristics of a godly man, especially for our young ladies. There might be somebody going, man, this had nothing to do with me this morning. And I go, everything to do with you this morning. You should know exactly the qualifications of what makes a man godly, because anything less is not acceptable. All right, let's do a really quick review. When God is looking for his leaders, he is not looking for intellectual heads. He is not looking for capable hands. While they're good, he is looking for humble hearts. It's the humble heart that God stands strong 
behind. Desiring this office, this position is a good thing. It's a godly thing. It's a noble work. It's a hard work. You must be above reproach. There's a standard that must be kept. Integrity, therefore, is the greatest weaponry and security of a spiritual leader. The church needs to know this so they can keep their leaders accountable. We are in this together. And when we fall short, we are able to pick ourselves back up by the way of grace and keep moving forward. This is the charge to the church. And since we're not dead, we're not done. We've heard it this morning by God's grace. Let's do it. Let's pray. And then we will. I don't know what time it is. All right. I did pretty good. I'm working on that. Did, did you notice that we said a sermonette on Christmas Eve? You know who's given the sermonette? <laughs> you know what that means, right? It means it's a little bit less than normal. So here's what we're gonna do here. Listen, this type of message likely needs prayer covering it. One, for each of us. Two, for your leaders. They need the prayers of the saints to make sure that they're keeping themselves accountable. At the same time, there are things in all of our lives that we need other believers to come alongside of us so we can pray our way through. And we wanna really cultivate and create a space where you can do that. And again, I know it's uncomfortable, I get it. You're, you're in your seats, you might be in the center and you don't wanna make anybody move out of the way, but I would, I would challenge you and encourage you to come up to this place. And there's nothing sacred about the, the space or the place, but I think just showing the Lord that you're coming out of your comfort zone. We wanna see people kneeling at the altar, right? Bring contrition back to the church. Bring repentance back to the church. Bring the desire to pray back to the church. And while the worship team is singing, I challenge you to come forward and there'll be prayer ministers waiting for you, take you by the hand and, and pray with you. Pray for your marriage, pray for your family. Come up, pray, say amen, thank them, and you can go back to your seat. But we have a four to five minute song, maybe, Let's go, church. What are, we, what are we waiting for? That's my question. What are we waiting for? Right? If we're not going deeper and challenging each other and comforting each other, what is this? Does that keep anybody else besides me awake at night? Like, what is this? This is a stupid hobby if you don't actually believe what's happening here. I could tell you of a billion other things, a billion other things that you can do with your time if you don't actually believe what's happening in the church of Jesus Christ. And men, look at me, it starts with us. It starts with us as the heads of our homes. And if we are humbled before our God, our wives and our children, they will follow. That's just the responsibility God has placed on our shoulders, amen? Father, bless us, O Lord. We don't deserve it, but we receive it. Cause your people to receive your Holy Spirit and to be prompted to pray and to receive your word. Thank you, O Jesus, for the work that you're doing here. In your name we pray. Amen.